Coffee has been a cornerstone of great hospitality for many years. It's delicious and approachable, both complex and comforting. It's a perfect drink for civil conversations. Eastlick Coffee Company is a coffee roasting company that values exploration, experimentation, and trying something new. Their pleasure is sharing their passion, which is their coffee. They offer a wide range of coffee flavors from different origins, such as their new Burundi flavor, which has notes of vanilla and blackberry. Head over to eastlakecoffee.com and enter the promo code UNDIVIDED to get 10% off on your next online purchase. I stood in front of this tree and thought about its horror. The back of its branches were contorted as it casted its twisted shadows on my feet. Behind me, I could hear the cars pass through Old Town Brooksville. As patrons entered the warmth of nearby restaurants, a chill went up my spine. My head hung low as I could feel the rage beating against the cage of my chest. The wind rattled the leaves as if a ghost had possessed them. This was what many locals called the hanging tree. Right behind this tree was an old courthouse. Many black individuals were taken to court and tried without due process. When they were convicted for a crime, they'd be taken to the tree out front to be lynched. According to some locals, the town of Brooksville was known for its hate crimes. Just to give you an idea, if you were a black man driving at night in the 1950s, and you were given a choice to either drive through Old Town Brooksville or take a longer route maybe possibly several miles, many opted to not drive through Brooksville for fear of being lynched. Virginia, a white nationalist rally that descended into deadly violence and chaos. The image is just coming this in. A car is the into a dissonance we find ourselves in. On one end, we hear the screams of all that seek to divide us. And on the other, if we listen carefully, we hear the whispers of a dream. As much as we want to embellish the American story as being one of resilience and strength, it's truly also an experience and story that's been shaped by grief and loss throughout its history. Where do we go to have these discussions on matters that we maybe collectively as a nation have repressed or avoid to even talk about? Where are the places where we can dare to sit with the other and grieve with them? Common ground has to come from common good. And we cannot see common good unless we're willing to share our common life. 
with one another. All beliefs have a story behind it. What if a meal is simple enough to respond to the dissonance that overwhelms our senses? What if the dinner table was a place where we can realize that dream that we sometimes doubt yet long for? Hi everyone, welcome to Undivided, a civil conversation on faith, race, class, and gender. I'm your host, Santiago Then, and thank you so much for uh, tuning in. Today's episode is a little bit different. Uh, my co-host, Jessica and Rachel, won't be joining us. However, we're going to have Lennon Flowers from The Dinner Party and Reverend Jennifer Bailey from The Faith Matters Network to discuss their most recent project, The People's Supper. As we've discussed in previous episodes, we're currently doing a series called Setting the Table. We're simply asking, what if the dinner table was a place in which you can have a conversation about the very things that seemingly divide us? What if it became a place where we could stop avoiding certain topics, but enter into deep relationship with one another? What I love about the People's Supper is that this is exactly what they aim to do. They create spaces around a dinner table where people of all different kinds of backgrounds could come together and share a meal and enter a conversation about our deepest hopes as a nation and the very things that grieve us. start my interviews with a question. And the question is this, what does America mean to you? I think in some ways, America to me is a question itself, right? Um, America is such a tapestry. And the thing that I love about America, about my definition of America, is that there is this kind of through thread with other people's definition, but it's so wholly different in the same way that, you know, living um, in Los Angeles, you know, Los Angeles is a city. And in fact, it is a state filled with lots of different cities, right. you know, yeah. that differ from neighborhood to neighborhood. And I think that that in a certain sense is such a microcosm of the bigger story of what America is today. Um, and, you know, and I think America has been a possibility and a you know dream for a lot of people and obviously this baked in kind of inherent identity of what an American dream is is also like founded to a large degree certainly on mythology on and on a denial of our history um, and a, an unwillingness to kind of confront certain realities and yet I also think that there's real truth um, to the America of possibility and there's something to me about dreams that um, you know, rather than I think that there, there can be a, a depressing, um, you know, reality check, um, you know, in that when we kind of confront um, how difficult it is uh, to realize those dreams. Most often in our cultural ethos, we've talked about it in terms of the American dream, right? This idea that we all can aspire to do better, that anyone, if you work hard enough, can 
can accomplish a, a degree of success, which is usually measured by monetary success, economic success. But I think one thing that was deeply uncovered in the 2016 presidential election cycle that brought, brought things to the fore is that the American dream has always in many ways been, been a myth for some populations in the United mm -hmm. States, including my home, the community I call home, which is the Black community, um, the African-American community in the United States. And so I think we have an opportunity in this moment with the ruptures that are at the heart of our democracy being so clearly on display to work towards building a new vision of the American dream, a vision in which every person is seen as, as whole and valuable to this project of building um, an beloved interrelated community. And, you know, I, I'm a person of faith um, and I'm a Christian and a reverend. And so the mandate of my faith is in a sense of radical hope but at the same time, I recognize that there is a darkness. And as optimistic as I am um, called to be because of my faith, I can at times feel hopeless. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that is really um, part of what the impetus, I think, that drove us to co-found the People Supper was trying to find glimpses of light in what seems like an otherwise dark landscape right now. Uh, there's a lot of things that we learned from the presidential election in 2016 about uh, the kind of, I guess, rhetoric that was incredibly divisive from the Trump campaign. But I'm, I'm wondering, just on a cultural level, what do you think is uh, dividing us right now? Yeah, so I think, you know, the, the common story for, you know, and explanation, um, you know, for the division uh, facing America today is, you know, the one that all of us are familiar with the minute that we, you know, turn on our social media feeds. And that's, you know, we exist in a time um, of, you know, uh, where every single imaginable truth can be true, right? Um, because we're, you know, perpetually, right. um, you know, seeing and being told very different stories um, and explanations of why mm. the world is and our realities are the way the the way they are. You know, we um, live with social media feeds. You know, that are the product of algorithms that feed us exactly what we want to see. You know, mm. and um, so I think it's really easy in this moment in time. Um, you know, to uh, exist with a kind of perpetual confirmation bias, right? We live yeah. in, um, it's fascinating when you look at, um, you know, I think we, we speak a lot in the language of red states and blue states, but the reality of it is actually it's red cities and blue cities, right? It's red right. towns and blue and, and blue cities more to the point. Um, but, you know, we're divided in the micros, right? And so we spend all of our time with people who look like us and believe the same things as us, um, and so, you know, it produces um, the kind of assumption, um, you know, that uh, everybody on the outside is wrong and we have to be right. I hear at the root of your question, one about how we build community with folks that aren't like us, who might not share our same cultural practices, voting habits, or, or even, you know, our educational status or 
or class background. Um, and for me, this is a sort of a question I've been wrestling with most of my life. I grew up in a small town, Quincy, Illinois, which is about 40,000 people on the banks of the Mississippi River. It's right across the Mississippi from Hannibal, Missouri, which is where Mark Twain's famous um, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn novels took place. And it is a place that is about 90% white and 10% all other. And my family and I, as a, as a Black family in that town, very much were other. <laughs> and so I had to learn at a pretty young age what it meant to become a translator, both across different cultures, but also um, in shaping my own self-identity. And so what has always been true for me is that the work of bridging across difference was never an option. It was just the reality I had to live in. And so mm. it it is really, um, as I think about my hometown and I think about, you know, especially the divisions that emerged post-election and the anger I, I honestly felt <laughs> post-election, yeah. I couldn't reach a place of hatred with those who had voted differently from me because I remembered my um, one of my best friends growing up, their mom, Mrs. Charrington, who when my mom was first diagnosed with cancer when I turned 14, um, it was on my 14th birthday and she went into the hospital and I was sitting at home alone and the doorbell rang and it was Miss Charrington with a birthday cake. And mm -hmm. Miss Harrington, a conservative Catholic, lifelong Republican, <laughs> who right. we probably have never voted in the same way, but she loved me. And when my mom passed away, she was one of the first people through the door at my mom's wake. And so, so as much as I wanted to demonize people who politically and ideologically think differently than I do, um, in the aftermath of that election, I remembered that one of the people who raised me, one of the people who cared for me in my moment of greatest need was somebody who is distinctly different from me um, by many accounts. And so, you know, I, I lament that more people don't have that experience <laughs> um, of as tough as it was growing up a little black girl in that really white space. Um, and it was tough for a lot of reasons. Um, I would never trade the experience of being forced to learn how to be present with um, those that people might brand other than me. And so for me, this conversation that really has emerged in the post-election context over the past year across bridging um, is not a new conversation. It is my lived experience. Obviously, this is where the People's Supper comes in, right? Uh, to kind of uh, step into that space where, yeah. it, it, you know, there seems to be a <laughs> vacuum it. or, right, right. You guys really step into the breakdown that's happening and try to build a bridge um, between people who feel like they, they might not have even common ground with each other. So could you explain first a little bit more about what the People's Supper is? People's Supper um, is pure and simple, an, a way of trying to um, either get back to or for the first time claim um, a means of humanizing one another. 
um, doing this thing that humans have been doing as long as there have been humans, which is gathering over meals and sharing our stories, right? Um, and our work began, um, you know, immediately after the election last year when we kind of realized um, across you know, very different kind of communities um, that each of us as organizers were a part of and serving, that there was this common thread um, of people who deeply, uh, who were deeply grieving, right? And who needed spaces for healing. Um, and there were, it was simultaneously an urge um, among some folks um, for real spaces of um, where they could actually escape the echo chambers that we, you know, existed, right, you know, right. for some people, the election was not a moment of surprise and um, for others it was a huge shock you know and they didn't realize the degree of the kind of like bubble um that they uh you know and and cocoon you know in a certain sense that they had come to exist within so those two kind of containers um as we like to you know phrase it um around healing and bridging um you know remains more than a year later the kind of backbone of what we do we bring people together um oftentimes who are in um, you know, shallow relationships with one another, right? They might know, you know, each other's names or, um, you know, go to the same place of worship um, or live within the same city or neighborhood, um, but they don't actually know each other's stories, right? Um, and so how do we bring people together, um, you know, for a real moment um, of not talking about the issues, not even really talking about you know, the values behind why we believe the things that we believe, but actually just sharing our stories. And through that mechanism, um, to have a moment, um, both to, to pause, to breathe differently, to be with one another, to appreciate the roads traveled, um, and through that process to actually grow in our, you know, empathy and understanding of one another. I have been blessed over the last Oh man, Lena, it's almost been a year <laughs> to be um, <laughs> building community with with Lennon and our dear colleague Emily May um, as co-founders of a project called the People Supper, which came out of a deep longing in the post-election moment to want to create spaces of sanctuary where people could see and see one another mm. over a dinner table. And so over the past, man, again, it's it's kind of shocking to think that it's been this long, but over the past, since January 20th, we've hosted over 250 dinners in city, 60 cities and towns across the US and helped support another 500 um, dinners with partners. And one thing that's been striking to me is not that I am learning new information about this moment, but I think through this project and through some of the dinner tables that I've been able to participate in, I've been reminded of just how um, deep the anxiety and fear that people are feeling in this moment. I think it is really clear to, to me and to us that we're existing in a time of rapid change, of rapidly changing social, political, and economic landscapes that many people in different regions of the country weren't ready for. And I think many people still aren't ready for. Mm. And I think our core instinct in those moments is either to dig into what we know or to reach out and touch the, the possibility. Um, 
that is coming before us. And I don't know that it's an either or. And I think one thing that has been really striking to me over the past year is just the the deep seated feelings of grief many people are sitting with in this moment. And Lennon, in addition to being an incredible human and my co-founder of the People's Supper, leads an organization called The Dinner Party, um, which for a long time was primarily made up of 20s and 30-somethings who've experienced traumatic loss and grief, um, usually the, the death of a loved one. And I lost my own mother in May of 2016, so prior to the presidential election. And there was something about the experience of walking with her in her last few months um, prior to her death. She'd had cancer and been battling cancer for 14 years, so half of my life at that point. Wow. And I learned so much about the will of the human spirit, but I've also learned a lot about what it is to walk with people who are facing death. Yeah. And I think one um thing that I realized over the dinner table is that there are a whole lot of people who are standing and sitting right now in the face of death. Some literally, right? So some communities that have been directly targeted by hate crimes and, and other um, horrific acts over the past year or so, but also people who are facing the death of that notion of the American dream that they were taught to place all their hope in. And that is manifested in many ways in my home home region of the Midwest through the closing of factories, through um, the reimagination of what economic prospects look like. And so I think one thing that I've learned at the dinner table over the past year has been how to sit with people who are grieving, um, bear witness to their truth and their pain, but also their joy. And from that joy, um, in the midst of deep pain, right? That they're not one or, it's not one or the other, it's both um, seeing sparks of possibility for what our collective future could look like. Well, also the other question I have is uh, this, uh, it, clearly after the, the election and whenever there's a, a tragic event that happens like the Parkland shooting or the Orlando shooting, um, you know, it, it seems that we obviously, because of the nature of how how these events affect us on an emotional level, we we tend to hyper focus on the the things that are breaking down, the things that are dividing us, the things okay. that are going wrong. But yeah. uh, I wonder if there is anything in those moments that actually unite us uh, that maybe we could be better at in terms of paying attention to. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the things that unite us, right, are, are to me, fundamentally are human stories, right? Um, it's love and fear. Um, and if we can, you know, assume for a moment um, that we might have very, very different um, definitions and, um, you know, hypotheses for what's going to get us to, an, to a common end, we might not really even believe in the same common end um, when, you un when you unpack it and really look at the thing. Um, but we can at least appreciate, um, you know, the kind of common source of human motivation um, that is we love our families, right? And, and however you define your family, right? right? Um, you you want to see the best um, for, um, you know, the people that you care about. And, and human beings, by their nature, you know, are wired for empathy and we're, you know, um, the kind of instincts to tend and befriend 
um, you know, themselves actually show themselves, um, you know, in moments of real trauma, right? We think of, you know, our responses to trauma so often as the kind of fight or flight response, right? But when you actually like look at the science, um, that's not in, in fact true. You know, these are the moments in which people come together, um, you know, and reach out to their neighbors, you know, um, and, and any person who's ever, um, you know, uh, been in a hospital um, or loved someone who has, right, knows those kind of surprise moments, certainly in which people weren't there. Um, but there's also all of the stories in which all of the surprising, um, you know, people came out of the woodwork, right, um, and showed up for you at a moment when you least expected it. And so I think that that's, um, you know, as much a part of what unites us um, in this moment in time. Um, by the same token, token, we know that you know grief and trauma can be exploited, right? Can in those moments, um, you know, make us uh, go deeper into our tortoise shells, you know, um, and hunker down and and um, you know turn to offense and defense. So I think it can be used as a tool for division. Um, but I think the opposite story is true as well, um, you know. And I, I think to think about you know Parkland in this moment in time. I'm curious, um, you know, what would happen if we were to entertain the radical possibility that no one likes seeing kids die in schools, right? Hey. And if we could operate from a place of trying to find, um, you know, the common agenda to reduce that from happening, right? Um, and free ourselves of, you know, all of the kind of signaling and symbolism. And, you know, if I hear this word, I'm going to assume um, you know, you're a monster, um, or you're here right. to make a monster of me. Um, I think that there is a lot, um, you know, in these tragedies, you know, uh, of just our emotional responses to them, um, that can actually be the stew, um, you know, the, the seedbed um, for a, a deeper, um, if not unification, right, um, and appreciate the can open the door, um, you know, to people working together who might not have otherwise. And I think that we're starting to see that um, with Parkland, Parkland specifically as well. As, as I think about bridging across lines of faith and race, I think about my marriage. So I am a black <laughs> Christian clergywoman in the African Methodist Episcopal Church that's married to a nice white Jewish boy from Nashville, Tennessee, <laughs> so, <laughs> who is the love of my life. and. For whom this work of, of bridging um, is just part of our daily vocabulary. Um, you know, I, I think there is a difference in our approach to these conversations between folks seeking out difference to assuage um, their guilt <laughs> about not being in deeper relationships with the other, I put that in quotes, however you define it, and genuinely wanting and desiring to get to know people in the fullness of their stories. I found that, you know, after major incidents occur <laughs> that kind of place a shock in our uh, cultural system, whether that be you know, a police shooting of an unarmed black man or um, the desire to reach out to people in rural communities post-election, um, that sometimes that is coming out of a good place, right? Out of a place of wanting to understand. And sometimes it is coming out of a place of um, wanting to, excuse 
excuse my churchy language, y'all, but uh, convert others to our point of view. <laughs> and so I think there is a way to approach this work of bridging from a space of genuine curiosity and teachability um, that is rooted in open and honest questions for which we don't have the answer to before asking. Right. <laughs> that is uh, is very much part of the approach, right? If we if we want to do the work of bridging in this moment, and I also just want to acknowledge that there are many communities right now that are under attack, um, not just feel like they're under attack, but literally are are being threatened and. Perhaps in this moment, those communities um, aren't ready to bridge and don't have the emotional or spiritual capacity to bridge. And their work is a little bit different. It might be about building um, deeper resilience and healing within their own community spaces, right? So um, I, I name that because I do think the work of bridging is truly a call that people are compelled to rather than it being um, just a nice thing to do if you're gonna get into like the messiness of a relationship with others. In terms of bridging and healing suppers, if you could explain to our audience, I guess the difference between the two, uh, what is a bridging supper <laughs> and what is a healing supper? Yeah, um, so the answer, you know, simple answer is that the vast majority of people that sit down for either one of these, when we ask them, you know, the next day, how was that and which kind of supper were you in, they can't tell us, right? You know, it was both <laughs> um, healing and bridging, and that's great, you know, so um, I think the original design of this, um, you know, is particularly um, recognizing that um, as important as bridge building is in this moment in time, it is not everyone's work. Right, um, and before we can get there, um, particularly for targeted folks um, right now, there was a real need to just hold spaces for healing, right, um, and and spaces in which we could, you know, quite simply hold each other, um, and so that was the, um, you know, birthplace um, of healing suppers was how in um, moments and in response to, um, you know, real crises. Um, and, and moments of tragedy, um, you know, whether that's Charlottesville um, or, you know, uh, Me Too and kind of all of the, um, you know, triggers that kind of ar can arise in a social media feed, um, you know, and a desire um, from folks in, in that moment and beyond it um, to actually not only just share their stories and, and some of their most intimate and hardest um, experiences of sexual violence, you know, online and on the internet, you know, with their social feed, but can we actually sit around a table um, and see each right. other um, as we're sharing those stories, you know, and the power and kind of a head nod and an affirmation and the discovery that you're not alone, right, um, requires a real healing again before we can go out and do the work. Um, for bridging suppers, you know, this began, and I think most obviously, um, you know, uh, we think of, you know, we, our minds kind of immediately leap to politics, you know, and the need, right. um, you know, to sit down across the political aisle. And that's very much true. And, and we've actually been incredibly gratified um, over the last year and surprised at times, um, you know, to see, um, you know, uh, progressive folks and Trump supporters 
sitting down around shared tables and actually being good to one another. Yes, indeed, it's possible. Wait, what? Um, <laughs> it's possible? Story. I know, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> shocker. But I think the bigger part of, about bridging suppers um, and one of the real surprises for us is that bridging isn't actually left to political spaces, right? We've got a lot of bridging work to do, um, you know, across all kinds of lines of difference. Um, in this country and in, in our communities, you know, um, right. both racial, generational, economic, cultural, and um, across faith lines, right? There's so many, um, you know, means through which we um, persist um, in either self-segregated spaces or spaces that were segregated by design, um, and hence, you know, carry, um, you know, really faulty assumptions about each other. I know at your dinners, you guys make the distinction between uh, being a brave space as opposed to a safe space. Could you explain that a little bit more for those who are not familiar with those terms? Yeah, sure. Um, so an invitation to brave space um, is a poem um, written by a colleague of ours, a woman, Nikki Scafe Jones of the Faith Matters Network. Um, and this is born of um, a concept that I actually believe was originally kind of termed um, in academia um, and particularly among um, facilitators who are finding, uh, especially in working with um, white students and students of color, um, that every time, you know, um, race, power, and privilege were brought into a room, right, the white students, not every time, I shouldn't say that, there's no such thing as every time, but a, a kind of typical pattern, right, was emerging, um, you know, where people were mistaking the term safe space, um, you know, which is kind of bandied about um, very freely, um, you know, in this moment, um, with spaces that were free of discomfort, right? And so anytime, um, you know, folks felt discomfort, right, at hearing somebody else's story, um, you know, and the way in which, you know, our lives and lived experiences differ according to the bodies that we live in, you know? Um, people were, white, white folks were, um, you know, calling foul, you know, this, this space doesn't feel safe to me. Um, and by the same token, um, you know, the reality um, uh, for, you know, targeted folks in the world um, is that there is no such thing as safe space, right? Um, so, you know, what does it look like instead to actually live into a brave space where we know and are naming at the outset that this is not going to be perfect, right? And we are not expecting perfection of one another, um, but we are trusting ourselves to work through um, those moments of discomfort um, and actually share a table together. Um, the you know, real ability um, to step into these conversations from a place of courage um, you know, and, a, and a belief um, that however stumbly we all might be, right? Um, we're gonna trust uh, that everyone is choosing to show up fully and openly to this, um, you know, for a common set of reasons and a common intention. Yeah, I mean, the truth is we started this project on a wing and a prayer. Right? We, um, we weren't fully funded at the time we, we launched, um, but we knew it was work we could not let go of, right? That we, it was work that we had to do and that was ours. And I'll admit, I think I still find myself feeling anxious sometimes. <laughs> and over time, I think that anxiety has shifted in insofar as at times I worry that um, 
maybe people <laughs> like our project too much. Um, and what I mean by that is that, you know, um, part of, I think what's attracted people to the people suffer is that for some folks, it feels like a, a safe place um, to have these type of conversations. And we certainly, um, as Lennon said, we don't necessarily believe in safe spaces, but we do believe in brave spaces. We want that to be true for people. And at the same time, there is an element of our work that is deeply countercultural, which says that, you know, everyone has a story that is worthy of being heard and seen. And that, you know, I, I fear sometimes that people will look at approaches like ours and see it as a magic bullet. Like they, that they will go to one dinner and they they will have done the work <laughs> of, of bridging, right, right. and and so um, you know there there's a there's a fear and anxiety that I think drives me to continue pushing on iterating and and figuring out how to do our work more deeply and better. That is you know what happens when you become too popular <laughs> has the <laughs> radical impulse that. Um, drove us to envision this project when I was driving down I-40, talking to Selenid on my way to Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, the radical sort of relationality that we have been trying to build through this project is that somehow lost when, when folks mistake it as um, a light way to engage difference. Well, I would imagine though that there might be some people who would hear that and actually think, well, then what difference does one meal make? How would you respond to someone who had that kind of question? <laughs> it's a great it's a great question. Um, and I think the answer, the simple answer, right, is that um, one dinner doesn't change the world, right? But without that dinner, the world can't change. Um, and I think that, you know, more and more we're finding this as a toolkit and a methodology, um, you know, for people who are already having to encounter one another, right? Um, you know, we've seen this used um, for folks um, doing, uh, you know, our movement work um, and groups of activists who um, are operating together, but very separate, very alone um, in these resource scarce environments. Um, and they're finding that there's a real kind of interpersonal, you know, violence in a certain sense, right? That's undoing um, their work day in and day out. And we need right. these suppers as a chance to actually put away the work for a moment and really check in, um, you know, with each other's stories, right? And again, to, um, you know, grow in an understanding of who we are, um, you know, not as people or as labels or as the identities that are visible to the naked eye, but, um, you know, as humans who are the composite of every experience they've carried to date. Um, and I think, you know, by the same kind of token, um, it's having a moment over a supper with somebody that, you know, from the way they walked in, um, you know, or again, the story that you can see of them, you know, their um, race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, what they do for a living, you know, the, um, you know, words on a, um, on a card, right? That we make all of these assumptions right. um, about each other that are um, oftentimes so far from, you know, our inner truths and realities. Um, so I think the only way that we actually get a moment where we can um, see that and kind of fundamentally reset the breakdown in our relationship, which is, you know, um, to me, and, and obviously I'm biased, but, um, you know, the, at the heart of what's happening on a political level, right, the, the election, this political moment is a 
symptom, it is not the cause. Um, and so I think through meals um, and through sitting down with one another in a space that feels intimate and familiar um, and warm and welcoming, right? There, that is the only means through which we can actually begin to do the work that allows us to do the work. There is something about good food that brings people together. And I think there's a way in which our food stories and our, our food culture says more about us than perhaps almost anything else. Um, I wish I was a good cook, but I am totally that person at the potluck who picks something up along the way <laughs> from the grocery store. Um, and that's okay too, right? I, I think I am representative of that part of the population that does not um, engage in the type of deep, meaningful um, creation of dishes <laughs> that, that others do. But it does tell you something about me, right? It does tell you uh, <laughs> something about both my strengths and my limitations. Um, and so but that is to say, um, to be part of a people's supper, you don't have to be the best cook or um, have the, the sharpest culinary skills. All you need to do is bring yourself and the rest will unfold. One thing I've noticed is that they're not only uh, brave spaces, but they're also hospitable spaces. And I was curious about the role location and hospitality play in civil conversations. Yeah, you gotta, people need to want to eat together, right? <laughs> in the case of the People's Supper. Um, and so I'm gonna, use a whole lot of metaphors right now, but it's important that you set a table where all feel like they can bring their fullness to, to the plate, right? <laughs> and so, um, you know, for us, we like to ground our, our dinners in a spirit of ritual um, in which everyone can participate equally. Um, we like to hashtag make it nice with flowers and and other items <laughs> that make people feel at home and really Lennon is the queen of this um they call her Mary Poppins because <laughs> she magically <laughs> things out of her bag to make things spectacular and so I might actually pivot to you Lennon because I feel like you've thought much more deeply about that. Yeah I, that's such a good question um and such an important one and I think the thing that we forget right um one of our mentors uh, is a guy named Parker Palmer, who's the uh, co-founder of the Center for Courage and Renewal. And he has a phrase I love, um, you know, called the soul is shy, right? Oh, and I love that. There is okay. no, it's so good, right? <laughs> it's like, so there is no better way, right. you know, to um, make sure that, you know, the person, even if like they stay embodied in a space that like they have flown out of the room, you know, if we like, um, you know, show up and immediately you're asked under bad lighting and bad conditions, you know, share the most vulnerable parts of yourself, ready, go, you know, <laughs> um, that we actually have to like do the kind of massage work in a certain sense, right? Of just creating a real sense of intimacy and warmth and ease and familiarity in order to be able to, you know, tap into our own truths, let alone be willing to share them, you know? So it doesn't have to mean, um, it certainly doesn't have to like look like a Pinterest board, you know, and we're not really interested in, you know, the Instagrammable qualities of the food upon our plates, you know, apart from everybody likes delicious. 
Um, but you know, you can do this just as easily, um, you know, with pizza boxes, right? Um, there are other means through which we um, share, you know, warmth um, and create that sense, um, you know, of, of real care in a space. And I think all you have to do is kind of close your eyes and, and think about moments in which you have felt um, wanted in a space, right? Mm -hmm. Where you have um, actually really appreciated the time that somebody's put in um, to creating that kind of environment. And we've done a lot of these suppers, you know, with 400 and 500 people, um, you know, in auditoriums and large spaces. So it is very possible to create that kind of sense of intimacy, um, you know, in, um, in, in very large hallways, you know, and sometimes we can't always control the lighting, you know, right. so I think that there's a lot to kind of creating um, hospitality that is just the act of, um, you know, facilitation and holding space and, you know, smiling as folks are sitting down and the kind of act of a toast, you know, around the table and the, the ways in which we choose to really not just share our own stories and our own mess, but actually tune into each other, you know, and deeply listen. To me, that is an act in itself of hospitality. Um, but I also think, you know, when you step into a space and you have that kind of like moment of having your, you know, it takes your breath away, you know, where there's real beauty there, um, you know, it can be a good way of, you know, telling, um, you know, that soul of yours, like, it's all right, we get that you're shy and, and hang around for a little bit, this is going to be okay. Um, so, you know, we it's not, you know, required, um, but I, but I think, gosh darn it, if it doesn't help. You run the dinner party, uh, which also creates spaces for people who are grieving. And uh, could you speak a little bit more to the idea of the, I guess, unifying power of grief and what it could do in terms of how we view one another? Yeah, I can. <laughs> um, so the dinner party, um, so you know, for context, the People's Supper isn't an organization. Um, it's a project of three organizations. Um, and uh, so I, I run um, the dinner party, which is to the world, um, best known as a community of 20 and 30 somethings who've each experienced a significant loss um, and connect around the dinner tables to talk about it. And our real interest in that um, is in building kind of micro communities and small groups of folks, um, you know, who meet not just one time, but over time, you know, and build relationships, but use as the kind of um, starting point in those relationships, all of the stories and experiences that tend to be the last that we choose to share. You know, they're the things that we hide. Right. Um, they're the, you know, sources of greatest kind of discomfort. Um, and because we're, you know, uh, so good um, individually and collectively at, you know, being silent about those stories and experiences, it, the end result is that all of us think that we're alone, right? And everybody thinks that whatever it is that you're feeling in a moment is the wrong thing to be feeling, um, you know, and it's not to, the correction to that is not to say, um, you know, that there's a right way or a wrong way. It's to give per people permission, um, you know, to name who they are and all of the complicated stories and people and legacies um, you know, that they carry within them, right? Um, and the things that, you know, tend to be the first um, thrown under the rug. I also think grief is a justice issue, you know, and I think that unprocessed grief um, and trauma, you know, can um, affect a whole lot of harm in the world, right? Um, that there's this, you know, um, very true adage that hurt people hurt people, you know? And by the same kind of token, um, 
you know, the moments of our, um, you know, a broken heart, right, um, can be the means through which we, you know, um, A, reset, you know, like understand that we don't have forever on this earth, you know, um, it can be an opening and a window um, into, um, you know, meaning making and finding purpose and resetting, um, you know, what was what was important to you the day before might not be important to you now. Um, it can be such a powerful um, vehicle for, you know, cultivating empathy and that surprise, care and concern, you know, when people that we've never expected to show up, right? Or, you know, assumed that you're, that you, um, you know, have uh, never had to kind of carry hurt or hardship, <laughs> that, that that actually, right, it, it gives us a different kind of appreciation for one another when you um, learn about, you know, the um, parent who died, right? Or, um, you know, the sibling you lost as a kid, you know, or um, the heartache on an anniversary, you know, of someone's passing or the deeply complicated, um, you know, experiences of loss and grief, um, you know, of the living, you know, and, um, you know, the relationships with, um, you know, the, um, you know, stories of abandonment and disappointment and the absence of belonging, right? And that these are all of the things that are last to be shared um, and they are first to generate a real sense um, of just appreciation in one another. Um, and, um, you know, all at the kind of human resilience um, and, right. and yeah. stories of survival, um, you know, that is a part of kind of a foundational human story. So I think that, um, you know, grief can be itself an extraordinary bridge, um, you know, to um, relating differently to, to not only to each other, but, but also to ourselves, you know, um, and that when we compartmentalize and kind of, um, you know, shut the door on these stories and experiences or are forced to hide, you know, generally the end effect um, is that we, you know, do some kind of, that in, in itself is an act of kind of violence, personal violence, right? Um, you know, and, um, and it means that, you know, we're uh, kind of constantly walking around with like these giant elephants that, you know, threaten to kind of suck up all yeah. the oxygen in the room. So I think if we can just name our elephants, right, um, you know, and find that um, there is such power, um, you know, not in trying to fix the unfixable um, or to, you know, um, deny one another's discomfort um, or right to experience hurt, you know, and pain and sorrow, um, but that that can actually be an extraordinary vehicle um, through which we um, both tap into our personal power and appreciate the power in one another. So I'm, I'm, I imagine someone could be listening to this right now and they're thinking, all right, I'm, I'm in. I want to join uh, this project, uh, The People's Supper. Where do I sign up? What do I do? I'm so glad, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> Visit our website, uh, thepeoplesupper.org. There you will find um, ways to, to sign up for dinners. Right now we are looking for hosts. We have heard from people in over 500 cities and towns who are just waiting for somebody in their hometown to start a table. And so we'd invite you to sign up. And on our website, you can sign up to host um, bridging suppers, which we've talked about a little bit today, and also healing suppers. So if you are a part of a community that is in need of deep healing in this moment because of the 
the political and social context you find yourselves in, we have resources for that as well. Um, and again, you know, uh, we're really into um, just being a tool and a resource, you know, for people um, and a means through which you can start a different kind of conversation with that um, neighbor or colleague, um, you know, who you wave at um, or say hello to in the hallway, um, but have never had the gumption to say, hey, would you like to sit down and share a meal? Um, and we can give you, you know, some starting uh, ideas for how to start. Yeah. Um, and we've got a um, staff and team that's kind of ready um, to support um, you host um, and anybody who wants to convene that conversation, we can think through, you know, how do you actually go about pulling together a guest list, you know, not just um, you know, of those kind of, um, of uh, shallow contacts, you know, and people that we don't know so well, but how do you even um, reach out, you know, to other institutions and, you know, in places of worship and um, civic groups across the city, you know, what would it look like to bring together people who, um, you know, otherwise wouldn't even have the chance to meet, right? And what do you do when you get there? Um, so that's a big part of our work uh, these days. And so you can check out our resources, um, you can sign up to host and we'll put your name and date on a calendar and bring you through a, a training process um, and hook you up with everything you need to get started. thank Facts Not Fiction for our theme song, Lonely Dreamer. You can check out their most recent album on Friends and Oppenheimer, wherever you listen to your music. We also want to thank Eastlick Coffee for sponsoring our show. If you've not done so, buy their coffee right now. It'll blow your mind and your taste buds. Lastly, we want to thank our wonderful producer, Charity Betancourt, for helping us put this show together and the folks at People's Supper for sitting down and chatting with us. For more about our podcast, follow us at www.undividedpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcast. We'll be back soon with our next episode of Undivided. See you soon.